title leads us into chapter 2 of Matthew. We transition from this dream that Joseph found himself in. He was wrestling with what to do with Mary. He was not fully understanding what was happening. And of course the Lord showed him. And this was a promise from all the way from the garden. We looked at that last week. How Joseph was just in a long line of this promise. And in fact he was now chosen to be the earthly father of Jesus the Messiah. The one who would be God with us. The one who would forgive the sins of his people. As we transition to chapter 2, lots goes, a, lot, a lot happens. Family's now in a house. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, we'll see that they're in a house now, so time has expired. Jesus has been circumcised. He has gone to the temple. He has there met, um, even as a baby, his mom and dad met uh, Anna and, um, and Annas and, and Anna, uh, and Simeon and Anna, sorry, I did that last week too. Um, uh, now Mary has been through her purification. Luke chapter 2 says she had to go through all of that. It reminds us that Joseph kept her a virgin throughout this. Um, even as we see this passage unfold, um, he is now having normal relationships, but he protected her during that time of of betrothal, marriage, and the birth of baby Jesus. They've already been to temple as well to offer uh, sacrifices on behalf of the child and Mary's purification. We know that they give turtle doves versus a lamb. Uh, Turtle doves would probably uh, signify that they did not have much money. That would certainly put that before these gifts that they receive um, from the Magi. They're clearly remaining in Bethlehem. Uh, This is an important aspect. These magi need to find them there. That's going to fulfill the prophecy of of Micah 5.2. Bethlehem is a place that is Jesus written all over. It isn't. It is a very fertile ground. It's known for its farming. It's about five miles south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was called the house of bread. And again, such a key to Jesus. Jesus himself said, I'm like a piece of grain. I must fall into the ground and die. And from there would come fruit. That illustration is given also by the apostles of the life of a Christian as well. He's called the bread. And if you don't eat him, you will not, you will, you not survive. You will not be able to sustain. He is the spiritual life to us. All others will expire They will die. He is the bread of life. And so where he is born is extremely fitting. Bethlehem, as we'll see, is a main highway. It's a connection from Jerusalem to great parts of the world, uh, most assuredly Egypt. They will be on that highway shortly after this passage. Joshua captured this area as we go back into our Old Testament era and and it was later got its name after that time. But it was known for its grain production. It's a fertile ground and And there, um, Jesus, the bread of life, was born. Jacob buried Rachel there as he pursued God and the promises of the promised land. Ruth married Boaz there. All people in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. David grew up there. He would have watched his father's sheep in this area. Eventually, the town itself was named the City of David. And so Micah 5.2 rightly prophesies the birth of Christ to be in Bethlehem. As we look at the setting, it's not hard to see the spiritual condition of the nation. 
Nobody's looking for the Messiah. Foreigners, Gentiles are coming looking for Jesus. The the religious men, the men who should know, who actually when questioned know exactly where he's supposed to be, but they have not seen the star. They are not pursuing the Messiah. But there are a few men who are, and thus that is the theme of this message. Let me give you four thoughts as we drop down through this text. Number one, God has not chosen many wise men, but the ones he does glorify his son. God has not chosen many wise men, but the ones he does glorify his son. I want to start in a unique passage thinking about this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn with me there. I want you to see this passage. This is the passage that kind of captured my thoughts if I thought about the wise men and the foolish leaders of Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul has began to really expose the weakness of the Corinth church. They had lost the message of the cross. They had, had not savored it and the power of God to change life and to save those things. They had begun to be pulled into the world's philosophies and trying to integrate that with biblical truth and it wasn't working and he begins to show that cleverness of man against God is nothing. He challenges them in verse 20, where's the wise men, where's the scribes, where's the debaters? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's exposing there's no comparison to the world's philosophy with the word of God. It's all foolish. And then you drop down to verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. Isn't that so fitting for this text? The king of kings born in a manger scene. Foolish to the nobles. Foolish to the elite in the religious sect of Israel. He does this. He brings shepherds versus high priest. There's not many of them. Verse 28, he takes the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. He doesn't use what we think he should use. He wants you to see that he did it. And the scene of Jesus' birth and these wise men coming reminds us that we are to boast in God, not in anything else. Verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Here's that reminder where we sit. We are in Christ. It's by his doing. He did that. I'm a Christian because of Christ. I'm a Christian because God did that. Notice, Jesus became wisdom for us and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He accomplishes all those things on our behalf. He declares us to be right. He declares us to be set apart. And he declares us to be purchased. So just as it is written, let, uh, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Well, these magi are very interesting characters as you turn back to Matthew chapter 2. I think they're very fitting of that text in 1 Corinthians. We we know so little about them. The Bible does not tell us a tremendous history of them. Matthew 2 is probably really our only legitimate facts that we find out about these guys. The early church does not give almost, almost no information from the early church fathers. It isn't until the Middle Ages that the number three, we three kings, gets developed. And they're even given names. This comes out of a lot of the Roman Catholic movement in the dark ages of our history. And many believe that they were actually the sons coming from the three sons of Noah. There's no proof of that. Somewhere around the 12th century, somebody found three skulls in a region that they connected to it, and the legend took off. But the Bible doesn't tell us any names. It doesn't tell us any number. It doesn't tell us what they wrote on or who accompanied them. All it says in verse 1 is that they came from the east. It says there, now Jesus, born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi. These wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Well, in Jesus' day, the Magi were, at least in their region, were part of a very strong political group. They were come from the Parthians. They lived east of Palestine, and right now you're very familiar where Palestine is, aren't you? In the Old Testament, though, the magi or wise men were well known. They appeared very early on in the Bible, and they appeared throughout the generations. Very early on, we find them with Joseph. Genesis chapter 41, Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. The wisest men, all are brought before him. Nobody knows. Joseph is brought in and there interprets the dream perfectly, gives all credit to God. Joseph begins to put an influence on wise men. Exodus chapter 7, Moses is in front of another Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. There he has wise men who are trying to reproduce the miracles that God is doing through Moses. Those wise men are watching on and they become very limited even through their satanic and magicians that they were able to do some of that, but they were not able to go and do what Moses did through God. They're watching. Moses has a great influence on wise men. You skip down to Daniel's day. Daniel is brought before the king because he too has a dream that no wise men or conjurers or magicians or diviners were able to declare what it meant. Daniel is brought in and he too gives all credit to God for the for the interpretation of the dream, and there he interprets that dream. He has great influence on wise men. Later in the captivity, as different nations take over the captive Israel, we come to the story of Esther. The Bible says in chapter 1, verse 13 through 14, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, they were there, always there, these wise men around the superpowers of the world, Esther and Mordecai, had great influence on wise men. Some historians think that these magi here were linked to Shem, and that would, that's a possibility. That would link them to both Jewish descent and Arab tribes, because Ishmael and others would come from that. 
And so there's a possibility there. Other historians connect them back to Abraham the, and the priest of Ur of Chaldea, but no one can know for sure. But Numbers chapter 24, we were in this not very long ago. Many of you know I'm preaching through the Pentateuch on Wednesday nights. I'm in starting Deuteronomy after the first of the year. But in Numbers 24, we have the story of Balaam trying to curse the nation of Israel for the king Balak. If you turn there with me, there's a very interesting prophecy that has much to do with what we're going to study today. Numbers chapter 24. This is now his third attempt to curse the nation of Israel. If you remember the story, he continues to try to curse this nation. And every time he does, he opens his mouth and the pure word of God comes from it. In fact, he tells the king, Balak, I can't speak without the word of God coming out of me. It was a supernatural thing. As much as he wanted to curse them to get the money he so greedily wanted, he could not do it. He's on his third attempt now when we drop down to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, 15 and 16, tell you who he is. He's very clear. He's telling you he's hearing the words of God. He's speaking and he knows the knowledge of the Most High. He's been given this revelation and as he opens his mouth, it falls out and look what he says in verse 17. I see him, but not now. I see him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheath. That prophecy is an amazing prophecy. Certainly, not only was Balaam the mouthpiece of this living God in declaring his divine purposes here for his chosen nation, but he is also giving revelation of God's ultimate design of sending a Messiah, a Redeemer, a star is going to come shining out of Jacob. This is the Messiah. This is the seed spoken of in Genesis 3. And so this star of Jacob, this scepter from Israel, points forward to Christ himself, and he is the only one that can fulfill such a statement. And certainly that ties to the lineage of David. And and we still today see the star of David. And and you can see where that star is going to rise up out of that. And that seed's going to go forth. And there will be the Ruths and Boazes and Davids and so forth in that line. But ultimately it will find its brightest shining in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thousands of years later we find these wise men, these king makers as the word really declares them to be that they're pursuing this star they're pursuing a star that has led them to this one they believe the promised one they believe it's this one that Jacob said that the scepter would never depart from him and so maybe it was not just Daniel who passed down this prophecy maybe it was Moses and and Joseph, and maybe Esther had her hand in this in some way, and Mordecai and others. Maybe somebody heard Balaam make this prophecy, and and it got passed down. And certainly the Bible was written down, and the Pentateuch was written before Moses dies, and the nation goes into the land, and it's recorded there, and people have come back to this. And wise men began to wonder who this would be. Well, no one knows for sure where these men came from, 
But God, listen to this, God in his infinite wisdom raised up men to whom he would reveal a portion of his plan at least. (laughs) And and he passed this truth on to them that at the fullness of time, this Messiah was going to be born and it was going to be a birth like no other. There would be a star that would mark it. There would be something shining so bright that they would want to follow it. And it would lead them to the truth of the Messiah. Well, we do know some things about the Magi. We, knew, we know that they were astrologers in astronomy. They were big in that. That was part of their studies. They were strong in their sciences. In those days, the eastern skies were very, very clear. If you go over there today in many of the large Arab nations, they're very smoggy now. But uh, there, they were not. And the skies were often clear. It is said that fathers, as soon as they were able to begin to communicate with their young boys, they taught them the stars. They navigated by them. And not just on, on, on water. Certainly, stars were very important on that. But by land. It was their GPS, their global positioning system. It was the stars. The stars were a solar system that they charted. They could tell the seasons were changing as they saw the earth moving in the solar system. And maybe when this new star appeared, someone along the line looked back to that prophecy in Numbers 24, verse 17. But God had men whom he endowed with great wisdom to help along the way. And I, and I thought this week, I thought, Lord, you, you took, you raised up men like Joseph and Moses and women like Esther um, and you put them in these prominent positions where wise men had to hear and these men were not were not ignorant I was having a discussion with somebody this week about Moses and and Gina and I having the opportunity to stand where he was trained in in the Karnak temple and and realizing how brilliant this man was And God made him that way and so that men would listen to him. Even wise men would be affected of him, of of Pharaoh's kingdom in some way. Daniel, his intellect, but his godliness are are both so superior in his ministry. He has three friends with him that are non-compromisers. And these godly men had influence on men like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius and King Hazarus in Esther's day. In fact, I just finished reading Esther in my own Bible reading. And at the end of the book, in chapter 6, the wise men say to Haman before he dies, they say this, if Mordecai, now listen to this, they, they had to learn this, before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. If he is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him. Somewhere along the line, they understood that you're not going to stamp out this nation. Their God is protecting them. They had an understanding of that. And so these wise men had men in their lives, people in their lives that taught them these truths. Now, why are the Magi in Jerusalem here? They're looking for a Jewish king. They want to worship him. It's clear within the text. And how did they know about this particular King Jesus here? Well, the book of Daniel tells us that the Magi were some of the highest ranking officials. And I, I think it's fascinating that Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream and he saves their lives. Do you remember this? And, and this is why I think a lot of theologians keep going back to Daniel as probably 
maybe where this got solidified because these are probably Persian um, magi. And, and there, because of what Daniel did, those lives got spared. Now, there were many of the wise men who hated Daniel. We know they did. They tried to get him destroyed. They ended up in the lion's den themselves, right? But doubtlessly, there were men there that loved Daniel, were grateful for his interpretation. It saved their life. And so, although many of the Magi were godless, <laughs> um, there were some that were grateful. And maybe they sat down. I mean, this is just uh, uh, speculation on our part. Maybe they sat down and they said, well, how did you do that? Tell us about the God that gives you that kind of wisdom. Now, many of the Magi in Jesus' day were godless men as well. Uh, they played huge roles in the rebellion of the Parthians, and they fought with Herod in the intertestinal period. We know that. They were politicians and practitioners. They were deceptive. Uh, they used sorcery and the occult. They were very satanic in many places. They actually were hated by the Jews. In fact, one Jewish philosopher from Alexandria said this, they're vipers and scorpions. But the Bible says in verse 1 that they came from the east and they are a very different sort. They are looking for the king of the Jews. We've come to worship him. And so these magi seem to be strongly influenced, at least by Judaism in some way, or something that's been passed down, the promise of this star, the promise of this seed, the promise that was given to a man like Daniel who would lay his life on the line for this living God. But this time, these men are Gentiles. I think it's amazing, and I, and I never stop to marvel that God does not hesitate to rise up worshipers even in the most difficult times. Time when Jesus is born is probably one of the most deadliest times to be on the, wor- be on the earth. There was nobody who followed after the Lord. He had not spoken in 400 years. It was a deadly time. There were men like Herod that hated people. He was so jealous of his job, he killed his own family members. This was a very difficult time, and yet here these magi arrive in Jerusalem, the hub of spiritual worship, saying, verse 2 here, where is he? who is born king of the Jews. For we saw, past tense, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. It just seems they're going around town saying, where is he? Where is he? And soon Herod hears about this and they are directed to him. But nobody's looking for him. I think the main point in this first thought here is God will always raise up chosen people to worship his son, even a few wise men. And that this text and all of history proves that to be true. God will always have worshipers. Second thought here. Uh, Self-centered king and a saving Messiah. Well, I think the shepherds probably fit the description in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, not very noble, not very wise, and so forth. They, these men were often uneducated. They could not give testimony in court. Um, God often uses that. But according to verse 3, he, he does use magi, wise men who are looking for him. And verse 3 tells us, uh, I'm still in numbers, as we, as we get back on that text, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Israel with him. Well, what they heard, what he heard, notice is in the end of verse 2. We've come to worship him. You know what he heard? 
You haven't come to worship me. That's what he heard. But here's these men. They are, they're just opposite of, of Herod. They're, they're magi that want to worship. Herod wants to kill. History tells us that Herod used the Parthians um, for his benefit to get himself put into that position. And then once he was in it, he turned on him. It caused all kind of problems from there. Um, they were constantly fighting against it. Uh, there were zealot groups that came up that fought against him. And, 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 and the Magi uh, were not good friends with him. They were a very powerful influence in the East. And, and yet here's these two uh, really mortal enemies in the same room talking about the same Jesus. One group wanting to worship him, the other wanting to kill him. Magi weren't just three. I, it's most likely they were a very large group that came. We know they're wealthy in what they're bringing. They're, they're kingmakers um, in a sense. And so they have wealth, they have pageantry, they have power, and they would have certainly had military presence. And that would have, would have maybe scared Herod. Herod's very crafty. He may have brought them in. He's trying to figure out how many they are. Can he take them on? Um, He's worried about what they're after. All of those things are around his selfishness, but these magi proved to be there for a very different reason. Herod's probably in his 70s by now. He's still as jealous and wicked as ever, but he has a decision to make. Is he going to turn this into a military skirmish or is he going to use his manipulation to figure out where this king is, this rival is, and get rid of him? Most likely the Magi were these, again, Persian Parthians. And Herod was a wicked king. The Bible tells us in verse 3 that not only Herod was troubled, but all of Jerusalem with him. Herod was troubled because everything's a threat to him. He's, he's always worried about what people think and who's going to take his position. But when your king is worried, you better be worried. People knew this king. They knew he was to be feared. They knew he was foolish. They knew he could start a battle in the middle of town. And so this entourage, which would most likely have been armed and greatly supported, Herod is now engaged in this conversation is this going to break out into war is this this little town going to come apart there's no doubt they were worried about this man you know when you kill your own family that gets out they know he's bloodthirsty verse four look at it with me gather together gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of of the people he inquired of them where the messiah was to be born well for the sake of time we won't dive into completely and everything about these guys but just a couple of thoughts it says among the chief priest was the high priest there so he he gathers this chief priest notice it's plural there and the scribes well they were supposed to just have one high priest but by the time Christ came along they had several high priests but only one of them could go into the temple and uh, exercise the duties of the high priest there, but they would have several of them, and they used them for a council. And so even when Jesus is uh, put on trial, he's brought before former high priest, even before he comes before the high priest. The scribes were a ruling authority. They ruled the Jewish law. They were known for both their scriptural and their traditional law. They were prestigious, religiously prestigious Jews. They were scholars of the religion of Judaism. But they were strict legalists in both the moral law and the civil law. 
Verse 4 tells us that Herod called them together. He, he wants to inquire of them. What's the timing? What's the place of this birth of this new king of the Jews? He has alternative motives, but he doesn't know how to figure this out. And so he turns to the men who should know. Notice in verse 5, they give him the answer. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Here, Micah 5.2 is quoted. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least of the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, even the religious leaders who were very self-serving, unbelieving in the coming of the Messiah in the sense of a savior. They were political leaders. Even they recognized that God's word was clear where this Messiah would be born. And there is no doubt here that he was to be born in Bethlehem. And he was to rule, the Bible's clear here, is to rule Israel. But despite their correct interpretations of the scriptures, they were not looking for them. He was not, they were not looking for him, nor when he was here did they submit to him. In fact, they were key figures in his death. And yet in this text, they acknowledge that Jesus was predicted. He's the one who's going to come. He's going to rule his people. And there's clear evidence that the Jews of Jesus' day knew that he was coming. And I love this text because they point to, yes, there's a Messiah coming. We know he's coming. We know where he's going to be born. But when he comes, they're not ready for him. It doesn't fit their narrative of what they want. And even with the Magi there to worship him, eventually these religious leaders would ignore the scriptures, reject Jesus Christ. I, I think in this passage right here, as I just said, Lord, what a contrast between King Herod and a few wise men. These men are here to worship. This man is so jealous of what he has. He's ready to destroy so he doesn't lose what he has. Look at verse 7 with me. Then Herod secretly called the Magi to determine from them the exact time of the star. Well, Herod's wicked suspicion now, he, in, that, in that suspicion, because what happens when you have wicked intentions, you start to be suspicious, and then from there you start to hatch plans, and that's exactly what he's doing. How am I going to get rid of this rival king? And notice he wants to know, look at this, it says there he wants the exact time the star appeared. Not why it appeared. He's not interested in that. He doesn't, want, he doesn't care about Numbers chapter 24. He wants to know when it appeared. And that's because that'll give him a good estimate at the age of that child so he knows how to kill them. Look at verse 8 with me. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I may too come and worship him. What a statement of deceit. You can see, though, in his wicked suspicion, in his hatched plan now, he he sends the Magi to go find this child and report back to him. You notice that deception goes farther. He, he was now not trying to find the time. He's trying to find the what? Location. Time, location, kill him. That's what he's after. He says, I may come and worship him. What a lie. What a lie of deception and jealousy and envy. Jesus is all. (laughs) 
you'll either bend your knee to him or you'll find yourself worshiping yourself. I mean, it's, it's, there's no half-heartedness. This is, this is why we teach so um, abundantly on the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's, he's either everything or you'll find yourself drifting into suspicion and even deceit. You either come and give him your entire life or you'll give him a portion and that'll fail. But Herod was wicked envy. It cannot be suppressed. Look at verse 16 with me. When he saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged. This This is such a hard verse, isn't it? He sent and slew all the male children. He had a time frame, but he didn't have the exact location. So he took the time, expanded it, so they made sure he got the child in that group. Then he expanded the reach of it into the whole town of Bethlehem and all of its vicinity, and their children, males under the age two, he destroyed them. You don't pursue Jesus Your alternative is to reject him. What a tragedy. Third thought, the glory of God reveals the Messiah. The glory of God reveals the Messiah. Look at verses 9 and 10. After hearing the king, they went their way, that's the Magi, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them. All of a sudden, this star, I'm going to get to that here in a minute, appears again, and, it, and again, now, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Just like the Magi, the Bible does not tell us much about the star they're following. Uh, probably ever since the recording of this gospel account, people have uh, speculated about what this star is. Um, you can read on this. There's all kinds of views. Um, there's a whole group that thinks it's planets, that it was Jupiter, that some that line, one I read said they believe, they believe that it's two planets aligning together that made the sign of the Christian fish, which pointed to the t- baby. Wow. Stick to the text, people. Too many Christians start to build all kinds of crazy things. Stick to the text. Others believe it was a meteor or a comet that was burning in the sky. They go, look, there's evidence that this certain comet was there. Others believe it was just an inner light in, as a star of destiny within the hearts of the wise men that led them there. Others believe it was a supernatural creation that God made for the moment and at that time. Now, you say, well, what do you believe, Scott? I don't believe any of those. <laughs> I think they were following a star, certainly. And the, the word star in the Hebrew and Greek just means a bright light. That's what we get translated from that. And this is certainly not a hill to die on, but as I got thinking about bright light, when I said, okay, bright light, what does that mean? Well, we've seen this before, right? In Luke chapter 2, the glory of the Lord shone around them, the angels and the shepherds, right? So the glory of the Lord is there pointing towards who Jesus is, right? That was the whole message that the angels gave. The glory of God was called the Shekinah glory, and it was a visible light. The nation followed it in the wilderness. It protected them from the Egyptians. It rested on Mount Sinai. It was a consuming fire on top of the mountain. 
Moses' return from getting the Ten Commandments and his face was so shiny because it was the presence of God, he had to veil it. This glory of the Lord filled the temple at the end of Exodus when the temple was completed. The Mount of Transfiguration, they said Jesus' face shone like the sun. In Acts chapter 9, Paul on the Damascus Road is met with a heavenly light. Later, when he's on trial in Acts 26, he says that it was brighter than the sun. John, writing in Revelations 1.16, John says from the island of Patmos, says he saw Christ's face and it was like the sun shining at all of its strength. Revelations 21.23, heaven is in no need of a light because the glory of God illuminates like the lamp of the Lamb. Not to mention every angel that comes from the presence of God reflects his glory. And then you have Numbers 24, 17. Speaking of Messiah, a star shall come forth from Jacob. And that idea of this brightness coming from the Messiah goes all the way to the very end of the Bible. Revelations twenty two sixteen tells us that Jesus is the bright and morning star. And so I, this is my thoughts, you can believe all those rest of those things if you want, but I believe it was the glory of God. I believe it was the glory of Christ the Magi saw on that fateful night. It was blinded to most people. Just like today, most people do not see the glory of Christ. They don't see him as the center of Christmas. It is, it is just words to a, a song. Most people don't see him. But some wise men do. And it leads you to him. And so I believe the glory of Christ was shining like a star that night. And they saw it. And they led them to Jerusalem. And I think this is so fascinating. Because he gets to Jerusalem. These magi there. And they're asking around. And they end up in Herod's palace there. And he's exposing that all of these people who should have known he was coming, who should have been looking for that star, hoping for that, ready to worship him, have no clue. He's exposing their dead hearts. And as soon as they get done there, the light shines again and they are going right to the birth of that child. I think it was an amazing work of God to show the brilliance of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think the Shekinah glory of God was once again burning. And it was burning in a manger scene. And it was burning in Bethlehem. And men were attracted to it, both wise men and shepherds. And they came away men that were completely changed, marveling at what they had seen. God was among his people again. I'm not... Sure, they were the same after they saw it. They, they, they went away and said, we've seen this star. And, and then the connection with Christ had to change them forever. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came. It had a, it, it's right there. Now it's right where the child is. This bright, shining light is the definition, is the, uh, what the word star means. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I, I, I love those terms. Rejoiced exceedingly. 
with great joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God who has shine, his light shined out of the darkness. Now listen to this, because I want you to connect this with Christ and Christmas for us. Is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now think about that verse again. He is shown out of the darkness, is the one who has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where do we find it at? In the face of Christ. So that light, that glorious light that they were following brought them to the face of Christ. And there was a connection with his deity and who he was. And they broke their knees and bowed. That's what we do when we come before Jesus. Our knees break And now we know the knowledge of the glory of God because we've seen it in the face of Christ. Last thought for the gifts of worship fitting for the Messiah. God protected these magi. I really want to meet these men someday. Herod would have killed them too if he could. And as always, God is protecting his own son. He protected his son in all this. The seed is now on earth. There's much danger laid ahead from the manger to the cross, but God will protect him. Jesus often said, it's not my time. He knew there was an exact time. But now the fullness of time had come. He is now on earth. He's born of a virgin, born under the law. And we have Jesus. And they're there. And they're there worshiping him. Verse 9. Herod had no desire for this righteous king, but these men did. I I love verse 10 because it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uh, I just want to add this because I forgot to put this in there. The the Greek adverbs and adjectives in that little phrase um, all express uh, the expression they had as they saw this child. But the one word rejoice is in the passive. And I thought it this way. I I put this in my notes. It means that joy absolutely overcame them when they saw him. Is that like when you got saved? See, there's so many people that see Jesus as a way out of their problems. But then there's those who know they are sinners. They have no hope. Their sin will destroy them eternally. And they turn to Jesus Christ. And hope and joy and rejoicing overtakes them. They're they're so grateful. Because they know they're sinners. Too much message today in the American church is Jesus needs you. And he's a good thing to have. Like you won something that day. Oh no. He'll overcome you with joy like you've never experienced. He's everything. I love verses 11 and 12. After coming into the house, they saw this child and the mother and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Remember the the verb says they rejoiced. They were just overwhelmed. It was, it was poured upon them, this rejoicing. And so when they see his face, look, they just fall to the ground. You go, you go limp before him. He's a baby. 
What's causing men to fall like this? If, isn't, if he isn't God, I don't know what else would cause men to do that. They open their treasures. This is beautiful, isn't it? Opening their treasures. It tells us there's multiple men there. There's, there's this entourage that's with them and they found this manger scene, whether that's a cave or a lean-to next to a, a lodging place, whatever that is. It's certainly not where the Catholic Church probably thinks it is. <laughs> it's something rule and something difficult but now it's filled with wealthy men and treasures and they 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 break it open and they give gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and it's gifts fitting for a king kingmakers are here this gold is the most precious metal on earth still is in so many ways it always speaks of royalty if you've ever been to any museums or anywhere where kings have been, there's always gold that comes with them, whether it's their thrones or the walls or whatever else. Gold is always attached with royalty. It's kingly. It's a kingly gift. I think frankincense is the one that probably caught my attention the most. I don't know much about frankincense, so I began to study on it a little bit. It was a very costly incense in those days. It had an aroma that was extremely strong and used, they said, in the greatest occasions, it was burned. I can't think of a greater occasion than God on earth. I think it speaks of his deity. But the more I read on it, the more I thought... The high priest burned incense. They never burned it with the sin offering. They always burned it with the grain offerings and the fruit offerings and the worship offerings to God. And isn't that interesting that Jesus Christ, Hebrews calls him the great high priest. And here it was the high priest that always lit that incense, always kept that burning, always went in to keep that going before the Lord. Here he has given incense and he is our mediator. He is our high priest. He is the one who goes in before us and intercedes. And he's given incense. It speaks of his role between us and the Father. And the last gift is just staggering, myrrh. Again, a very extremely expensive perfume that represents humanity in so many ways because it is the fragrance for death. One of the strongest fragrances to cover the stench of death. Extremely valuable. Very important. Often kept for a lifetime until you die. This is the third and final gift. Everything in it points to the plan of God. God's plan from the beginning was this child would be born, born of a woman, born under the law, fully man, but yet fully God. He would suffer on this earth, but without sin. Be tempted, but without sin. He's the final lamb. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And so he is going to give his life. 
And everything's pointing. Your mind's running like mine. You can see, you know, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus, this myrrh that they had saved for their own death, they give it to the Lord and cover his body in it. He's a king. He's a high priest. He's the final atonement. <laughs> All in this first year of his death. The Bible doesn't tell us what the mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, did with these, but doubtlessly it helped them go to Egypt, helped them start life, maybe his carpentry business. I don't know, but it was a great blessing to them. Verse 12, we'll close with this. This having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. <laughs> I wrote down here, I said, God wasn't speaking to Herod or the religious elite, but he was speaking to a few wise men. <laughs> Isn't that so true today? Capitol Hill full of wise men Scientists that can't even begin to fathom a creator. World's full of wise men, but they can't see a child. Father, I thank you that there's many in this room whom you've opened our eyes. You led us to Christ. We've seen your glory in the face of Christ. We've looked into Christ in the scriptures and we've seen you, God. The invisible image of you, God, dwells in him in bodily form, Paul tells us. He is in every way you. You share that deity that only God has. He became flesh and he dwelt among man and man beheld the glory of God. And today, men, women, boys and girls look into the face of Christ and see the glory of God and know they're sinners and know that he is their only hope. There's many in this room who know that and experience that. But Lord, doubtlessly, there's some here that don't. God, I beg you to shine your glory in front of them. Let them see the beauty of Jesus. Let them see it this Christmas season. Let them see a child perfect, but come to be our sacrifice. Let them see that he dies in their place. Let them see that he's judged in their place. Let them see that his death is enough. Let them see that, Lord, you love faith in your son. And I pray, God, you would grant those in this room who don't know you faith today. Lord, help us hold this message clear this, this Advent season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. What a great time of anticipation we have as believers um, as we sing, as we worship the coming king. Um, my three-year-old son, Isaiah, loves the season. He's running around the house going, Christmas, Christmas. And to be able to teach him what it means about this coming Messiah, right? Um, I look around this room and I see so many little ones. And what a treasure it is 
to instill in them the word of God and who our Savior is. And so uh, we're going to sing this last song together, which is a, it's kind of a simple chorus, but so thought-provoking in a sense of anticipation of this coming one um, that Rachel's going to lead us in. So why don't you stand, church, as we sing this um, together with great anticipation. standing for our closing benediction. Our Father in heaven, it tells us that by your doing we are in Christ Jesus. We believe that. Left to ourselves, we would never come to you. We were dead, unwilling, unknowing. But by your doing, you brought us to you. You brought us to your Son, and he became our wisdom our human wisdom showed that it, would, it failed. We gained his righteousness because ours was just filthy rags. In Jesus, you set us apart now to be your people, no longer slaves to sin and Satan and death. And it's Jesus who redeemed us. And so as the text says, Lord, we only want to boast in your 
son. We don't want to boast in Riverbend. We don't want to boast in our own choices. We don't want to boast in our personal theology. We don't want to boast in any of that. We want to boast in Jesus. And we thank you that you let us see your glory in the face of Jesus. I pray that will dominate our Christmas this year. I pray for dads in this room that you will help them in a gentle and loving and biblical way direct their families to the one who deserves the boasting. I pray for single moms that are here. Give them strength, Lord. Help them as they navigate waters with children without a father. Help them direct their children to the one and only whom we boast in this Christmas. I pray for us grandparents. We'd come alongside our children, support them as we point their little ones and remind our children of Jesus. Help this be a great Christmas, not because we what we've received, but what we've already received. We give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Yardis Smith, we'll see you Friday night. Bring a lawn chair, sit close, members. <laughs>